Welcome to Discovering Academia, an interdisciplinary podcast with preeminent professors from around the world, striving to stoke the curiosity of scholars everywhere. Today we talk with Brent Allen, recently retired field lab director and boat captain at the Tahoe Environmental Research Center at UC Davis. For the past 30 years, he's been leading and conducting ecological research at Lake Tahoe. In this episode, we talk about the variety of research being conducted at Lake Tahoe and the diversity of ecosystems that exist within the lake. Additionally, we talk about the value of field research and why students need to get their faces wet and experience their studies firsthand. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, Brent Allen. Thank you for coming on today. You're welcome. Uh, Thanks for having me. I'm excited to uh, join your podcast. We'd love to start off by hearing a little bit more about your story. How did you get involved with Davis and what got you interested in studying water? Um, I went to school at UC Santa Barbara and got a degree in marine biology. And I was really excited about working outdoors with fish um, and pretty much any other species, as long as it was in the aquatic environment. I've always been a water person. And so after school, I started looking for jobs and I had a really difficult time finding any kind of work in the marine environment around Santa Barbara, where I had originally intended to stay. Um, But I did find aquatic fish projects with consulting firms. So for a number of years, I was working on any fisheries project I could get. And I kind of traveled around the Western US doing those. And I ended up at um, Utah State University in Logan. Mm -hmm. And I was working on a six-month project there. And as that project was ending, they had a project here at Tahoe with UC Davis. It was a joint project. And Davis was looking for somebody to fill a space because um, their master's student that was on the project had finished and left. And so while I didn't have a master's, they accepted me over and hired me. And it was a three-month position to finish up that project. And I've been here for 35 years now. So it worked out very well. That's amazing. So could you tell us a little bit more about like, that position and how you became the operator of the boat and director of field research? Yeah. So it, it kind of progressed, um, just through the years and, um, all of the work that I was doing because it was out on the lake, um, I was driving boats at a very early time with UC Davis and, had the basic boat training that the university provides and that I could get on my own just from uh, other people that were above me and had been here for a longer period of time. So I would drive the boats, I'd do the fisheries research out there, and it was always um, with other people on a team event and stuff. And then our primary boat captain, Bob Richards, had been here for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I started taking over more for him. And so when he... Um, ended up retiring. He had a, I think it was a 37 year career driving boats on Tahoe. Um, I took over driving with that being the primary responsibility I had was um, directing the field operations on the lake and being in charge of how the boats were used and the scheduling and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. And during your time as the boat operator, have you noticed how the conditions within the lake changed based on your location in the lake? Um, not specifically by location, but I have noticed big changes in the lake over time and that, and it's reflected in the data that we collect. And we did lose a lot of clarity just in the, you know, the three decades that I've been here and it's noticeable. Um, diving was a, has been a um, significant part of the job up here, um, throughout my career and seeing the, the change, noticing the change in clarity from, uh, the late 80s to today um, has been really noticeable. It's mm-hmm. I just don't see as far in the lake. How far did you used to see? Because wasn't there recent news that we're kind of close to where we were in the 80s? Yeah. So the last year has been very exciting. Okay. Um, so the, the clarity, we lost about a third of the lake clarity in 30 years starting in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And then there's it sort of tapered off um, our summer clarity loss Um continues, but the overall annual clarity um, has tapered off in the last 15 years. Mm-hmm. And um, But it's at a diminished level compared to what it was back in the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, there's some reasons for that that we can get into, but uh, the yeah, this past year, the clarity has returned to what it was. And 
we we joke a little bit. I've I can tell I've been here long enough and need to move on and let other people do it because um I can look into the lake from the boat and pretty much guess what the Secchi reading is going to be now. And I, <laughs> I was joking around yesterday when uh, we had some professors out on the boat. And so I looked over the side as we were heading out and I said, oh, the Secchi's going to be 17.5 meters today. And it, just as a joke, but I knew it'd be somewhere in that range. And it turned out to be 17.5 meters. So <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So it's time to move on. Could you explain what the Secchi is? Yeah, the Secchi disc is a very uh, simple instrument that we use to measure water clarity. Mm -hmm. And you basically have a 10-inch white disc that we lower down into the lake, and we mark how deep we can see it and how far it goes until it disappears. We raise it back up until it reappears, and the average of those two readings, they're usually about a meter apart. Okay. And that is our Secchi reading. And we get a little bit of criticism about it being, you know, high tech UC Davis. And all they do is lower this white disc in order to find out how clear the lake is. And the beauty of the Secchi disc is that it really translates the water clarity to the general public. Okay. Because if somebody were to ask you, you know, how, how, um, what's the water clarity? What they're really asking is how deep can they see the bottom in the, in the lake? Yeah. And the Secchi disc provides an artificial bottom so that you can actually relate to them and say, oh, it's 17.5 meters today. Mm -hmm. And they get it. Um, we use a whole bunch of other instruments that tell us why the Secchi reading was what it was. So they measure the particles in the water, they measure the chlorophyll for the algae in the water, um, the amount of sunlight transmission, a whole bunch of parameters that determine how quickly the Secchi disc disappears. Mm -hmm. But if that's all I used and I didn't use a Secchi disc, and I came back um, to the marina and people recognized the Davis boat and they say, hey, what's the clarity? And I said, well, there's 82 lumens of light at six meters. <laughs> it just means nothing to the public. So the Secchi disc really is a great tool yeah. for translating that information. Well, when you pull up on the dock, will people ask you those questions? Absolutely. <laughs> That's amazing. And the, the disc has been going on for a long time, right? That's been the standard... Yeah, so it started, um, Dr. Charles Goldman with Davis started, uh, his first readings were in 1958. And there were actually some historic readings from the late 1800s by John LeConte, um, mm -hmm. who was the first uh, president of UC. And so we had some background there, but then Dr. Goldman started the continuous readings in about 1968, and they've continued all the way through. And we do somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 25 to 35 readings a year. Um, and take an average because it does change over the course of the year. And then when you take those readings, are you in the same location every time or do you at, like take readings across the lake? Um, we have two stations where we take those readings. Um, down the west shore near uh, Homewood mm -hmm. is one where we sample that every 10 days. And so we take the readings there every 10 days. And then we also use the middle of the lake mm -hmm. and we sample that one once a month. And so the readings are done out there as well. And there's really not a huge difference between the two. Really? So that, that that would even translate to the shore where people are swimming or jumping off rocks and all that. Like if the times were in the middle of the lake, it's a lot less clear. People will notice that when they're swimming in the lake themselves. Yeah, generally the the lake responds at least on a seasonal basis similarly. So if you're losing clarity closer to shore, you're also losing clarity offshore. Okay. Um, our station down near Homewood is far enough offshore that we're in deep water, mm -hmm. and that's roughly 300 feet deep where we're doing those um, measurements. Mm -hmm. So it's not the same as the beach and the, sure. the wading zone. Yeah. Is the middle of the lake the same as the deepest point? Or is that... So Tahoe is <laughs> pretty interesting. It's uh, the best way to envision it is kind of like a big salad bowl. So it's very steep sided. Um, so anywhere near shore, it get, gets deep very quickly. Um, and so the middle of the lake... If you think about it in a depth perspective, you can get to the deepest point of the lake or very close to it, very close to shore. Um, okay. So that's a big, open, deep plain out in the middle um, with these steep sides and then this narrow band of kind of sunlit shore zone around the edge. Yeah. And then to give the listeners an idea of how deep it is, I think I read a stat where you could fit the Empire State Building in the lake. Is that that roughly true? Do you know? It's it probably roughly true. The lake is 1,645 feet deep. Um, 
So, yeah, I don't know the height of the Empire State yeah. Building, but you probably get pretty close. Yeah, that's amazing. Another another way to look at it, the, a description that I heard that was pretty interesting is that if you kind of look at the mountains around the lake, um, the peak of those mountains is about how deep the lake is from oh, the lake wow. surface up to those mountains. So 1,600 Whoa. feet high. So Tahoe's at, um, say, 6,000 feet. So if you add another 1,600 feet, those mountain peaks are about 7,600 feet, mm -hmm. which is about how deep the lake is. So that kind of gives you another way of looking at the basin. Do you happen to know the peaks at like Palisades and is it around the 17? Uh, those are like 7,600. The top of the ski resorts are a little higher. Okay. And they're yeah. up around nine. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. But if you go back and a little bit more about your research methods that you perform, you talked about the Saki disc and uh, diving as well. But could you maybe expand a bit more on some 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 of the normal operations you do? Yeah. So um, the Tahoe Environmental Research Center has been involved or are involved in all sorts of different ecological research. So we have people working on the forest. We have people working on the um, the airshed and how the atmospherics impact the lake. Um, lake physics, how the currents move through the water. Um, fisheries work has been a big part of our, our past. Um, so generally limnology also, which is the study of it's freshwater oceanography, essentially. Mm -hmm. So looking at algae and zooplankton and those, um, the ecosystem of the lake. So from my position, I get involved in all aspects of that because I assist graduate students in their projects, which might um, be looking at algae. It might be looking at lake currents, all sorts of things. Um, so we schedule our boat time to go out and make sure that we can get everything done, which is ends up being a busy schedule. But I would, a lot of my work is collecting water for samples um, that get analyzed either for water chemistry or for the zooplankton that are in there or even bacteria that are in the lake. Mm -hmm. And we may be going out and collecting sediment cores from the bottom of the lake. Um, there's some researchers that have been looking at paleolimnology over the years. Mm -hmm. And basically the sediments collect the historical um environmental impacts that have happened to the lake so they can go back and look at that so it's hard to pinpoint on a given day what what i will be doing i don't know if that answers your question. no yeah that does it i think just a general overview of just like how diverse your role is was exactly what i was looking for yeah and that's it's part of the excitement of it is that no day is the same yeah um today i'm going to be um going down um to the south end of the lake and removing an experiment that was put in uh, on Monday, and it's looking at um, upwelling events based on thermal changes in 24-hour periods. So as the surface waters cool, they drop, and that really small-scale changes in um, water temperature and water movement can stir up bottom sediments. Hmm. Um, so the beauty of my job is I don't have to know the details and do all the <laughs> math and figure it out. But I do get to participate in the sense that we install the equipment, we make sure it's set up the way that the graduate students want it, and then we get to go back and pull it out and yeah. later find out what the results were. What's been one of your favorite projects that you've worked on? Um, this gets into kind of the the change in water clarity, but the the one for me, I'm really a, an aquatic ecologist at heart. Um, I I like how the all the different organisms in the lake interact with each other to create the system that we see. And years ago in the mid-1960s, the aquatic ecosystem was greatly disturbed um, with the introduction of mysis shrimp. Mm -hmm. And the mysis shrimp were put into other lakes around the Western US, and they found that they became really good fish food. Um, deep living lake trout um, would feed on them because these shrimp make daily migrations away from light. But then they go up in the at night and they would also potentially feed shallow living fish. And one of the, the big goals back in the 60s was create recreational fisheries for anglers. So the fish and game agencies put the mice with shrimp in with the idea that they would produce more fish and bigger fish in Lake Tahoe. And in other systems that had worked. Well, Tahoe's a pretty unique system. So with the water clarity we have here, 
the shrimp went down as deep as a thousand feet um, instead of maybe just a hundred feet. And they wouldn't come back up to the surface until it was really, really dark because they're so light sensitive. Mm -hmm. um, well, our shallow living fish out on the lake are sight feeders. And so when the shrimp came back to the surface, they were already gone to sleep. They couldn't take advantage of this um, new food source that was in the lake. But the shrimp, um, unbeknownst to the, um, at the time to the people putting them in, are really good predators on other zooplankton. Mm. So we lost our cladocerin zooplankton due to mysis predation in the lake. And that changed how our game fish respond. Um, and it was that whole change in lake ecology that happened um, between 1965 and really about 1971, 72. That was the exact same time that um, Charles Golden was measuring this great clarity loss that was happening in the lake and really sounding the alarm call appropriately that the lake was changing and it was due to the impact of people. Mm -hmm. He focused it primarily on the development of the Tahoe Basin, which was a major impact too, because we had silt coming in. We had um, a lot of those nutrients were stimulating algal growth. With the commercial development, right? With the commercial yeah. development and just home development okay, because yeah. people were starting to move here and yeah. build houses. And it, at that time, it was really unregulated. Mm -hmm. So a lot of um, environmental destruction being done on the landscape that was yeah. directly impacting the lake. And so him, um, Dr. Goldman being able to draw attention to that and get regulations put into place that prevented that, what they call eutrophication or the um, stimulation of algal growth in this beautiful lake, mm -hmm. that really saved Tahoe. Yeah. What they didn't recognize or focus on as much was that the impact of losing that cladocerin zooplankton population also contributed to the loss in clarity. Mm. So what we saw just recently was the mysid shrimp, um, their numbers plummeted in Lake Tahoe. We're still working out the details of why. Okay. Um, but their population went from about 100 per square meter down to six. So a dramatic decrease. Essentially, the, the shrimp disappeared from the lake in all practical purposes. Over what time frame? Um, in about two months. Okay. Wow. So it's a sudden wow. crash of their population. Wow. In their absence, we saw the cladosterin population come back. These are the native zooplankton. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the cladosterins are really good. It's known you know, worldwide from research. They're really good at indiscriminately feeding on small particles in the water column. That's what they do. They'd like to target the algae because that's what they get their nutrition from. But because they're indiscriminate feeders, they eat these small soil particles and inorganic particles as well. So they're really kind of the, the Roombas of, yeah. <laughs> of being out on the lake. So when they came back in this past year, we saw summer clarity return to what it was 40 years ago. That's amazing. So we're not saying that the cladosterins are the silver bullet that are going to you know fix Tahoe's clarity woes. Um, but it did give us the opportunity to see just how big an impact they really do have on water clarity. And that was something that was <clears throat> really wasn't appreciated with the previous research. So I think moving forward, it gives us a whole new way to look at um, methods to enhance um, the, look at the aquatic ecosystem. Mm -hmm and its impact on water clarity, as opposed to just the terrestrial view that we've had for the last 40 years. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then, could you maybe speak on where like, some of the other invasive species in Lake Tahoe? <clears throat> yeah, so Tahoe, uh, it, it's an oligotrophic lake, which means that there's not a whole lot of nutrients in the lake. There's not, and even though I just talked about the eutrophication, Mm -hmm. compared to other systems, Tahoe's still very clear, very clean. Mm -hmm. And so there's not this big base of the food chain supply of food to support organisms. So Tahoe naturally <clears throat> has relatively few species and they're relatively low density. Um, and what we've seen is that over time, introductions like the mysotrimp 
um, dramatically change that because it's a pretty um, fragile ecosystem in that sense. Mm-hmm. And there were, <clears throat> excuse me, there were introductions of game fish that were, again, back in that time of let's create <clears throat> more, more recreational opportunities for fishing. I'd like to break down the, <clears throat> the introduced species really in two terms. There's the intentional introductions, mm-hmm. and then there's the unintentional or unsanctioned introductions. And the intentional ones were the lake trout that are the primary predator in the lake, um, and top game fish. That's what, if you go out with a fishing guide, you're probably going to be fishing for lake trout. Mm-hmm. They get up to um, you know 25 pounds in the lake, so they can get very big. Average about two to three, so it's a really nice trout to catch. There's also rainbow and brown <clears throat> and kokanee salmon in the lake. Oh, wow. So those were all introduced intentionally for recreational purposes. Um, crayfish also in the lake was introduced in the um, early 1920s as another food source for people um, for collecting crayfish and eating those. Yeah. And then we get into more of the unintentional introductions. And these started happening probably in the 70s um, and then later. So we have largemouth bass. We have goldfish. Um, bluegill, brown bullheads. Um, there's there's a host of different fish species that ended up taking up residence in the lake where they could. Because Tahoe is deep and cold, they generally are warmer water fish. And so they had to find places like marinas mm-hmm. um, where there's elevated um, water temperatures and then also the... Uh, the plants and the habitat that they they look at. Yeah, plants have also been introduced. A lot of these probably came from trailer boats and things like that. Mm-hmm. So curly leaf pond weed, Eurasian water milfoil, mm-hmm. um, those have had an impact on marinas because they love that habitat and they grow tall. And then the motorboats have to go through and they get wrapped up in the props. So um, those are an issue. And probably the most recent one that's had a um, dramatic change on the way we see Lake Tahoe aesthetically is the introduction of Asian clams. Mm-hmm. And they came from originally from the Columbia River, but before they got to Tahoe, they went all the way to the East Coast and then came to Tahoe as this migration happened from the East back over to the West Coast. Um, so they ended up in Tahoe in 2008 and uh, maybe a little before that, but that's when we first noticed them. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they they live in the bottom sediments um, down to they're functional down to a depth of about um, fifty feet. Below that, the reason I use functional is that the temperatures are so cold that they can live there, but they can't reproduce there. They just never get warm enough to reproduce. Okay. So it's really an impact on the the shallow water environment around the lake, and they live in these sandy habitats, which is. Um, right offshore of those beautiful white sandy beaches that you see around Tahoe. Mm-hmm. So the clams are there. They filter in water. They take out the nutrients that they need. And then they excrete their waste right at that sand water interface just offshore. Okay. Their densities can get very high. So thousands per square meter are possible. Wow. When that happens, the nutrients that they're releasing are basically algal food. So they take phytoplankton, kind of these individual celled algae, consume those, excrete their waste, and they create these green algal mats of filamentous green algae. Mm -hmm. And those have been washing up on these pristine white beaches. I think we saw those last week. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we were about. Yeah, so it's, um, it's an aesthetic problem for Tahoe because you have all of these tourists coming to look at these beautiful white beaches and then recreate offshore. And during the peak summertime, typically August, early September, you can get these big green algal mats present on the beaches. So we're starting to look at ways of how you might mitigate that. Um, removing clams is, is a difficult thing. You're never going to get rid of the last one. So it's kind of like painting the Golden Gate Bridge. If you're going to do that, you get to get to one end of the beach and you go back and start over again. Yep. And um, so we're looking at different ways of how we might be able to prevent some of these algal mats from um, interfering with the beauty of Lake Tahoe. Super interesting. Do, what are some of the proposed ideas or, or is it too early to say? 
it's too early to say, but we have a project this summer where we're going to be looking at um, the potential to um, suction remove some of that algae offshore before it actually washes up on beaches. Okay. Um, and the reason that that is has a, a research application, aside from just going out and seeing if you can remove algae effectively, is that all of those nutrients that are stored in that algae that came from the clams were generated from Lake Tahoe. So you could potentially use the clams if you vacuumed, vacuumed up the algae that they produced as a net removal of nitrogen and phosphorus from the lake. Oh, okay. So we're starting to look at that kind of aspect. Would it make sense to um, not only you get the aesthetic benefit of having the algae gone, but you're also using that algae as a net removal of nutrients. Very interesting. And does the algae have any negative effect on the lake other than aesthetic effects? Um, it doesn't really that we've seen so far. Um, <clears throat> it, it potentially could. We haven't been able to look at this yet, but if that, that algae doesn't just end up on the beach, mm -hmm. some of it does wash down the slope and end up in the bottom of the lake. Mm -hmm. And if for some reason it's creating a larger mass of algae down at the bottom of the lake that is then decomposing, um, when algae decomposes that way, um, it consumes oxygen. Okay. And so it could add potentially to deep water oxygen depletion, but that's, that's very hypothetical and speculative. We don't have data showing that and whether there'd even be enough biomass to, to impact that. Sure. And you mentioned density earlier, how we have a relative low density of wildlife yes. in the lake. Does density correlate with a lake's health broadly or is that not something that can be connected? Um, I, the way, I guess the way I look at that is that the, the density of organisms is more reflective on the type of lake you have. So if it's an oligotrophic lake, typically it's going to have pretty low densities of organisms. And that's the way it should be. Mm -hmm. There's just not a lot of base of the food web to support higher trophic levels. Mm -hmm. um, if you have a very productive lake, it might have very high densities and that would be appropriate to that lake as well. Where I see differences in the human impacts on lakes and where we start to change them is really with the introduced species where we might increase biodiversity, but not necessarily in a positive way. Um, so I think Tahoe went from, uh, you know, like six native species of fish, and now we probably have uh, like 14 or so living in the lake. Wow but they aren't necessarily benefiting mm -hmm. the lake. Yeah. Yeah. And then beyond the six fish, what are some of the other native species? Yeah. So the, I talked a bit about the zooplankton yeah. um, that are out in the lake and those are very important obviously for feeding fish, but also we now know um, for their ability to improve water clarity. Um, there's also a whole community in the lake um, that rarely gets looked at. And it's that really deep bottom um, environment. So the, the sediments that are down over a thousand feet deep. And there's a lot of oligochaetes or worms that are down in the sediment down there. Mm -hmm. um, there's also an endemic species to Tahoe down there. So it's only in Tahoe. Mm -hmm. It's a blind amphipod. <laughs> so again, it's a little, um, little creature down on the bottom that the reason it's blind is it probably doesn't need eyes for where it is. The sunlight doesn't reach it. So it hangs out on living its life down on the bottom of the lake. <laughs> so there, there are some unique species in Tahoe that haven't received a lot of attention. Yeah. We talked a little bit about how we got to the clarity levels we're at right now. Could you talk a little bit more on the significance of Tahoe being the clearest it's been in 40 years? Yeah. So the, I think the significance of that is that we've, we've discovered the importance of the intact native aquatic ecosystem. Um, <clears throat> there's been an enormous amount of money spent on remediating damage to the landscape and very little or no money spent on remediating the aquatic ecosystem. Mm. Um, it's a daunting task, but um, when you look at the, the level of funds that have been spent at Lake Tahoe, specifically for water clarity improvement, suddenly it becomes reasonable to consider seeing what we can do to manage 
the aquatic ecosystem as well. So that's really the big significant thing is that we see this new tool available to us to try and reach some of these goals that we have for water clarity. Yeah. I think you've given us a really good background on the general like ecological view of Lake Tahoe. What has been some of those things that have kept you interested so long in researching Lake Tahoe and living here and working here? Yeah, I think the um, the fun part I mentioned a little bit about is that every day is different for me out there. And because I actually get out and I put my face in the water and I pull up samples and I see what's in these samples on real-time basis, um, it's exciting that just to see what's there. Every day is a little bit different. Mm. So I... Um, I get to do what people do on their vacation, essentially. <laughs> um, I go out on the lake, I have a boat at my disposal. I go swimming, I go scuba diving and I take samples in the lake. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a vacationer's dream. Yeah. So just the fun factor there is great. Um, but from a research perspective, seeing things like the mice shrimp disappear, that was totally unexpected. Yeah. Um, and then because we see these um, events change, even if water clarity changes or something, we immediately start asking, well, what's driving that? Why is that happening? Um, so it's really kind of this ongoing mystery throughout my career of problem solving or what, why did that happen? Mm-hmm. What caused this shift? Um, so I find that really fun. Yeah, no, definitely. Have you seen a, a decrease in field research during your career? Is that becoming less popular with the advent of data? I, I've seen a shift, um, and it's, it's one of the pitches I'd like to make to any students that are, uh, that are listening to this. Um, get your face wet. Get your feet cold. Um, I find, and this is a little bit of my, my bias here, but as we shifted to a real digital technology Um, age, we tend to put black boxes into the lake and let them collect our data for us. Um, Or we take a dip sample from a boat and we send it off to a lab and let it tell us what's going on. And I really believe that getting in and seeing it for yourself brings back that understanding and mystery um, on a personal level. So if you can watch what the fish are feeding on, and then you take your dip sample and or you take your tissue sample from the fish and you do your stable isotope analysis with nitrogen and phosphorus and figuring out or carbon and nitrogen and figuring out where it is in the trophic level and this black box data is going to tell you what the fish was feeding on you can just put your face in the water and look yeah now it's not that that black box data and the lab analysis isn't important but if that's all we rely on we really miss out on the personal connection with what's happening in the ecosystem. And that's really, really important. Yeah. Yeah. I think your story about going on the dock and saying 17.5 feet today, like perfectly illustrates that point. (laughs) But um, how often are the people performing the research in the labs with you on the boats when you're going out onto the lake? Um, the, the graduate students get very involved. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, um, they, if they're working on Tahoe, either as part or all of their um, thesis or projects, they're up here and they go out on the boat and they um, participate in the sampling to the, the most degree that they can mm-hmm. um, with their skill sets. And um, so they get a really good view of, of what's going on and understanding their projects. Um, some of our staff that um, work in like our chemistry lab and stuff, we tr- we try to get them out on the lake. We're certainly available to take them out anytime. They get busy with their projects. Sure. Um, but we do have staff that uh, regularly come out on the lake so that they engage both in the, the sample collections and then the analysis back in the lab. Yeah. And then how many people are scuba certified for research purposes on the lake? So I can only answer that from within the Turk organization. Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah. Um, but we have currently four um, scuba divers that can do research diving. So this is a little bit different in that just because you're a certified scuba diver doesn't mean you can dive for research. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so we have four research divers and that's about to go down to three because I'm going to be retiring in a month. Um, and you really need a buddy pair yeah. uh, to do diving. 
So when you have less than four, and it starts to get a little bit more difficult being efficient out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have an, other staff members that are interested in becoming research scuba divers. So really maintaining a group of four at the lake is is very important. And what's the distinction between certified and research? Because I know certification, anyone could pay for a course and get that, but what's that extra level? Yeah, so the the basic scuba course is something you would go to a dive shop and pay and you can do it in maybe a week or two weeks, you get your dive certification and then you can go diving on your own um, recreationally. If you want to use scuba for your research, um, there's an organization called the American Academy of Underwater Scientists, and they set regulations for what research, uh, what kind of diving can be done within the realm of research. And so we're not commercial divers. We're not using hard hats and going down to a thousand feet and that kind of thing. Um, but you definitely learn the skills by becoming a research diver where the diving becomes more automatic and secondary so that you can actually focus and think about the research that you're doing underwater. Yeah. yeah. How much time have you spent underwater? Oh, hundreds of hours. Yeah, there's uh, <clears throat> one of the projects that we worked on. Uh, we needed to survey clams when they were first becoming invasive, and it was in Emerald Bay. Mm-hmm. And so we circumnavigated Emerald Bay underwater on scuba. And it ended up being something like four miles underwater or something like that. And so we've done that twice. Um, <clears throat> just a project that we're working on at Sand Harbor. And I don't remember how many miles we swam underwater over there. But again, it was probably like three miles underwater doing surveys. So just those kind of projects alone. Yeah. And um, because they're shallow, you can spend a lot of time underwater. Um, okay. The deeper you go, the the less time you're going to spend. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, over my career, I'd say I've spent uh, weeks underwater. Wow. And then where else in the world have you dove? Um, I've, I had a really great opportunity. This is another bonus, um, so students pay attention out there. Um, <laughs> if, you get your, if you're interested in diving um, and you get your research certification, <clears throat> it opens up a lot of doors because research divers are not that abundant. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them... Um, get into careers where they can't just hop away for a while um, and go work on another project. Um, I had some flexibility earlier in my career and I went and assisted uh, researchers at UC Santa Cruz. They were doing biomedical research and in new products. Um, So it was a really biochemistry department and they were looking at sponges from coral reefs and looking at the compounds that sponges have internally mm-hmm. the reason they pick sponges if you think about it coral reefs are as dense as denser than rainforest as far as biodiversity and space availability and sponges are non-mobile mm-hmm. so when they end up on a reef they need to have these internal repair mechanisms if they get damaged because they can't just hop up and run away from a predator or move to a new area so they're they're very dense in these interesting chemicals to biochemists so I just, my job was to go and help collect the sponges. So I, twice I spent two weeks in New Guinea um, oh, that's amazing. on a liveaboard dive boat, um, diving three times a day, collecting sponges from the coral reefs over there for biomedical research. And it, that was fascinating. How long ago was that? Um, that was in uh, the mid 1990s, I'd say somewhere in there. Did you start to see any coral bleaching at that point? Not at that point, not where I was. Oh, yeah. Man. But I, I just returned from a, a vacation in the Philippines and was snorkeling. And I have to say, I was very disappointed in the reefs, not because of anything that the Filipinos had done to the reef. It was the coral bleaching and the destruction and um, the amount of bleaching that weakened the reef. And then when storms come in, the reef, reef tends to be broken up and a lot of the coral was covered in algae. And it was a real eye-opener for me on the degree of climate change because I had you know we've seen all the movies and we've um we've heard about the destruction but to see it firsthand was really disappointing yeah what are some of the ways that we're trying to combat climate change in regards to coral reefs have you like do you know much about that 
I don't. It's a bit out of my my realm. Um, but I I think coral reefs um, because you can from a research research perspective because they're there and they don't run around. You can go back to the same area of reef mm-hmm. year after year after year, and you can really study how it is changing as a result of the water. Um, chemistry that's going on. Yeah. So there's a lot of work being done that way. And it's really fascinating how yeah. the reef responds to changes in pH and water temperature. Yeah. yeah. That was my crude understanding as well. It's just the water temperature rises and they're very sensitive to a small amount of change. And then I'm pretty sure there's a another organism that lives on them that will then die at that temperature. And that's why they get bleached because all the color of that organism leaves. Yeah. But, and the other big one for all calcifying organisms in the ocean is a change in pH. Okay. It makes it harder and harder for them to build calcium because um, the calcium dissolves in higher, or, sorry, in lower pH waters. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Then I have another question about the diving. What makes a good diver? Like probably because I know a lot of people that talk about, oh, like I'd love to be a scuba diver. And then you, I look at them like, I don't know. <laughs> you do well underwater. Is there other factors, I guess? There is. Um, I... This is very general because um, there's all sorts of people that make very good divers. Um, I would say someone whose personality is generally calm. And mm-hmm. um, someone, the best divers are people who want to be diving. Um, if you're becoming a diver just because you think it's cool to be underwater, um, test it first and find out if you really do like being underwater. Um, it's a very different environment to be in, especially to work in. Um, so the best divers are the people that just really enjoy being underwater. Um, I like to say that there's two different types of divers. There's those that go underwater and need to be entertained. Those are the coral reef divers that <laughs> um, want colorful fish and they're disappointed if they didn't see a manta ray. Um, and then there is more of the people that are just love being underwater and they don't need to be entertained. They're just hanging out down there having a great time. Research divers tend to fall into the latter category where you know, if you're diving in Lake Tahoe, you're probably not going to see much, mm-hmm. but you get to spend time underwater, you're hanging out and um, doing your work. And it can be really gratifying to be able to actually produce reasonable data while breathing on a tank underwater. Yeah. And then given the temperatures, like what are some of the temperature ranges of Tahoe? And like, that's going to lead to my other question of what equipment are you using to dive? Are you using rebreathers? Are you using dry suits and some of those details? Yeah, Tahoe is an uncomfortable environment to dive in year-round. Um, mm-hmm. The the surface waters can get up to um, 65 degrees, okay, um, which is really nice in the summertime. Um, but if you're in 65-degree water for an hour and a half, that's yeah. really cold. Um, and then in the winter, we do encounter occasionally when we're in the shallows, water that's down to 38 degrees. Wow. Um, and that's really, really cold. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... In the wintertime, we're using dry suits um, with really thick thermal insulation underneath them. And we also recently, um, through UC Davis, were able to get heated vests. Oh, wow. They were kind of a life changer for us. I wish I, wish I had it 30 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> they have battery packs and they actually have a heating coil um, on your back. So they're heating um, your lungs and your blood and your body that's being circulated out to your extremities. Oh, that's um, amazing. So it, it it was a game changer. Yeah. We can we can we still get cold, especially hands and feet. Mm-hmm. Um, but you do end up much more comfortable after a dive. And especially if you have a long surface interval and it's snowing, and then you gotta get back in and do it again. <laughs> um having that heated system inside your dry suit is really, really nice. Yeah. In the summertime, we're using wetsuits, but about as thin as we really get on wetsuits is seven millimeter, which is considered wow. to be a pretty thick wetsuit. Yeah, yeah, that's very thin. <laughs> um, and then how long will you be underwater for like, like the longest duration? Yeah, um, the depth that you can stay under really depends on how deep you're, or the time really depends on the depth you go. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of our work is shallow. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also at an elevation of 7,000 feet. Oh, yeah. and as you go up in altitude, you have to limit yourself on how deep you can go and how long you can stay. The reason for that is that you're building up nitrogen in your system while you're diving. And when you come back to the surface, you're not at one atmosphere, you're at 0.8. Um, so you off gas faster at altitude, the higher you go. Um, so 
there are limitations here at Tahoe, but generally if we're working on a project and trying to maximize our time underwater, we'll, we'll be down for an hour, maybe just over would be a long dive. Okay. Yeah. So there's never a use for rebreathers or anything like that. Um, we would love to get into rebreathers just because they're super cool. Yeah. Um, and the fish don't respond to you when you're on a rebreather the way they do when you're blowing bubbles. Yeah. Um, so I think the the beauty of rebreathers is really to look at the ecology in a the natural processes of the ecology, the fish mm. that um that wouldn't be responding to you the same way. They'd be carrying out their their more regular life. Yeah, you'd be in the background a bit more. You would be. Yeah. And and one of the ways that, you know, again, it's something I learned early in my career here at Tahoe was that with the water clarity at Tahoe, you can be far enough away from fish that they're not reacting to you and actually watch their behavior. That's pretty rare because most systems you can't see that deep or mm -hmm. sorry, that far distance wise in the water. And so by the time you actually see the fish, it's responded to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but in Tahoe, that's it's something that you can do, which is pretty interesting. That's fascinating. What's the mechanical difference between a rebreather oh, okay. and like a regular scuba set? So um, a regular scuba system, you're going to inhale the air out of the tank. Mm -hmm. You're going to exhale that air into the water mm -hmm. and the bubbles go up to the surface. On a rebreather, um, there's scrubbers in there that um, take the CO2 out of the system. So when you inhale oh. the air... Um, it's the same, but when you exhale it, you exhale it back into your system. So okay. you're not blowing bubbles. Yeah. yeah. And typically that allows for longer dives and... It does allow for much longer dives. Yes. Yeah. Because yeah, you, you, your tank doesn't run out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm pretty sure there's like a lot of military applications for that as well. They're very silent. There's... Yeah. Um, yeah you can stay down. You can go much deeper on those systems mm -hmm. and stay down for much longer periods of time. Yeah. That's fascinating. You talked about some of your favorite research memories in regards to diving. Could you talk to us about some of your favorite recreational memories? Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to rephrase that question for a different answer though because most of the really exciting stuff that I've done has been in research application. Mm -hmm. Um so I I got involved with you know I mentioned the the UC Santa Cruz group and diving with them. That was really fantastic. Um, but I've done a lot of work in collaboration with people at University of Nevada, Reno also. Mm -hmm. And one researcher there, um, Dr. Zeb Hogan, is a National Geographic explorer who works on megafish. So he was traveling around the world, still is, looking at what is the world's largest fish. And these, the, that's kind of the public outside of it. The research side of it is that these giant freshwater fish are really good indicators of ecosystem health. Okay. Um, so if you're losing your, the, the apex predators, if you're losing these apex predators, there's obviously problems within the ecosystem. So trying to just show these fish to different people, he would travel different places in the world and try to get quality images of them and just describe the fish because a lot of them just weren't even known at the time. So I was able to travel along with him, um, really just helping him out and having fun. So it's part recreational, part research. Um, but we would we spent time in Thailand. We met in Mongolia on our Mongolia project. Um, I went with him to Spain, British Columbia, um, Northern Australia, and one of the one of the great ones was in Northern Australia, where these these big rivers flow um, north out of Australia into the ocean and they have a crazy number of really large predators in the river. Hmm. So he was looking mostly focused on the, the sawfish, um, which can get up to like something like 18 feet long or something like that. Crazy. Um, and they would move up into these rivers from the ocean and go back and forth. Um, but along with them were saltwater crocodiles and these giant, um, whip rays so they're stingrays with these really long tails and bull sharks mm. so we went to this place uh that was 100 miles upstream from the ocean and there's this big pool and then there's these little uh kind of like a travertine uh waterfall where we could block off sections and create these shallow pools so we would catch fish out of the big pool mm. and move them into the shallow pools and then we could photograph them essentially in their natural habitat um, so we did this for three days there and um, 
we were catching bull sharks and putting them in these shallow little enclosures and then swimming around with them and photographing the bull sharks. Then we'd put in a, um, a whip ray and let that swim around and take a look at that. And so I have these pictures of Zeb Hogan sitting in this, you know, kind of like an office sized shallow pool with a bull shark and a whip ray just swimming around <laughs> with them and stuff. Um, and in the morning when we'd go down to start setting this up and get the fish and you could all on the sandbars, you could see these huge wide drag marks of where the, you know, the 10 to 14 foot crocodiles had dragged themselves across the sandbar at night. So we knew they were generally in the area. Um, so it was a very exciting time and we always kind of kept an eye out for what was out there. But um, even those are, they're, those are like daunting predators to be swimming around with. And they really weren't looking to hurt us at all. And, you know, if they defensively, if we were antagonizing them, sure, you might get bit or something like that or stung by a stingray. But when they had space to move around and we were just laying in there with them, they, there was no aggressive behavior at all. So yeah, it, it sounds a little bit more uh, dangerous than it was, but it was a very exciting time. How do you move them back and forth? Um, you stay toward the tail. <laughs> so it's like you two just physically like grabbing it and yeah we would we would actually just grab them and move them over to the next spot because the bull sharks weren't huge they were about four feet long or something okay like that. is that the picture on your online profile are you with the shark yes that yeah okay <laughs> yeah that's amazing yeah um so i i had some great adventures uh they were that were in a work capacity but not here at tahoe yeah. um doing that type of thing yeah and kind of not a dismal question, but another transition question regarding your career. As you are approaching your retirement, what's been one of the most difficult moments? Yeah, there's um, certainly when you're when you're in an outdoor environment um, working for this long, you have um, events that occur that are are not really what you anticipated for the day. But those just really become kind of interesting stories about life. And so it, it, this might be a boring answer, <laughs> but in a research capacity that I was in and have been in, um, I was on soft money for 17 years. And for students that don't know what that is necessarily, um, there's hard money positions from the university, and that's typically your professors and think they have a guaranteed salary paid by the university. Um, for staff, there's some staff that have hard money positions, but then there's a lot of staff, especially in a research capacity, where your money is paid from the grants that come in. Mm. And if you run out of grants, you run out of money. So really your job is dependent on either somebody writing you into a grant or writing that grant yourself. So it's it's almost like being a independent contractor within the university system mm -hmm. where let's say you get a two-year grant and great, your salary is written into there. So for the next two years, you don't have to worry about your salary. When that grant ends, that salary ends as well. So halfway through your two-year grant, you're starting to figure out, all right, well, what's my next grant? And so it's this, that was a really daunting thing when I started out with the university. And you know, the first two, three years, it didn't make that much difference. I wasn't writing the grants. I was working on other people's projects. Um, and I, I, two or three years, I wasn't that vested in the university necessarily. Mm -hmm. But when you're 10 years into a career with the university and your grant's running out and you don't know that you're going to have a job again, um, or at the end of that grant cycle, you don't know that you're going to have a job. It makes it really nerve wracking to buy a house, start a family, mm -hmm. those kind of things, because your job isn't secure. Um, so I think over the course of before I became a hard money position, it was, it was probably it took almost twenty years to get a hard wow. money position. Um, it it's a bit nerve wracking, yeah. And so that was probably one of the biggest hurdles I had to get through was how do I live my life um, with some kind of comfort that I'm going to be employed when every two to five years my funding runs out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Was it worth it? Oh, absolutely. I, I've had the best <laughs> job in the world. Yeah. Yeah, I really have. And again, I 
I spent 35 years doing what people do on vacation. And if you yeah. can, if you can claim that at the end of your job, you're, you're doing well. Yeah. Um, I, I highly, highly recommend, um, field work for people that enjoy being outside. Um, you end up with a, a white collar job in a blue collar environment, which is, is really nice because you have this university intellectual aspect that you get to interact with. Um, but on a daily basis, you're, jumping in the water, dr driving a boat and, um, hauling in lines. So it, it's this really nice mix between the, the intellectual and the physical aspects of work. Yeah. And then in order to excel at that balance of the white collar and blue collar job, what are some of the most important skills that students should look to acquire to excel in these environments? Um, well, the university is going to require you as a student that you're going to take that, the courses that, enforce that intellectual understanding um everything from your your physics and biology and um, whatever program you in you're in um you're going to come out of uc davis um like it or not as an intellectual um person in the united states um they it's just the way you start thinking about things differently as someone who's graduated from university the things that you can do that would make you um better suited to a field position with those intellectual skills would be to do things like get certified in scuba diving. If, if you want to be spending time in the field with this mix, um, if you like scuba diving, pursue the, um, research diver course, do it while you're a student, um, get a first aid CPR certification, um, get a wilderness first aid certification and maintain those. Um, when you're in the field at your, often an hour from any kind of medical help. So that really does kind of put you into this wilderness first aid, even though you're thinking, okay, well, I'm on a boat on Lake Tahoe. But if you have to perform some kind of first aid that is going to be sufficient for an hour before other responders get there, you're in a wilderness first aid situation. Um, so those having those kind of skills, the boating um, skills, take the Take the research or take the boating class from UC Davis if you think you're going to be working in an aquatic environment. Um, so having a boating class, having a scuba skills, having first aid skills, those put you way up in the ranks of um, how you could be hired into a field position because everybody you're graduating with is going to have their intellectual degree, um, same as you do. So that's a way to separate yourself if you want to spend time in the field. And then something to add on to that. If you're in the field, I think you can ask better questions. Kind of going back to what we talked about earlier of getting in the environment, seeing the interactions of the fish, seeing how the actual ecosystem is evolving, not what the temperature is and the pH and the salinity. Like You actually get a feel and a personal relationship with the lake or wherever your environment is. And then from there, you can perform better research, most likely. I, yeah, I agree 100%. Um, and that's really one thing that I do try and pass along to students is um, if they're interested in aquatics and if it could be other things as well, um, you know, the same would apply to forestry or to um, wildlife. Spend time out there. Um, if you have a weekend free, go snorkeling and go put your face in the water and see what's going on. Um, you know, one of the, one of the really exciting things you can do is if you're interested in fisheries, is do a little side research. It's very easy to do. Find out where the clearest water with the biggest salmon run is and go snorkel the salmon run. Don't get in the way of the fishermen, but you can snorkel with 50 pound salmon in Northern California. And it's really cool. So those are the kind of things that can get people excited about then studying them. And as you say, seeing it and seeing what these fish are doing helps you ask the right questions when you're going to do your research. Certainly. Is there anything about having a career in research that you didn't anticipate they think students should know? The, the one that strikes me is that you know, I was marine bio and ended up in freshwater fisheries the whole time. I had no idea how much night work you do. <laughs> I have spent so many nights working I thought, I thought that was for people who studied owls and bats. <laughs> and for some reason, um, and this is true across all aspects of aquatic ecology, it always seems like you end up 
having some reason to go out and do your research at night or take your samples at night or whatever it is. So that was a real surprise to me. Um, I'd say over my my career, I spent minimum two nights a month working. And I never would have guessed that as a fisheries biologist. That's super interesting. I think you've given a lot of great advice throughout this entire episode. But as we kind of wrap up, is there anything else you want to say to the students or anyone listening? Um, just reiterating what, what I've already said, because I think yeah. it really is important to, um, one, as a student, decide if fieldwork is something you like. You have to enjoy being outside and not just outside when it's 75 degrees and you get to wear shorts and run around. Um, a true passion for being out and seeing wildlife or swimming with fish and stuff. Explore that. See if that's something you enjoy. And if it is, then take some of those steps to make yourself more available to um, a career in that position. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, the more people that are getting out there and actually getting their face wet, getting their feet cold um, and enjoying it, the more we're going to know about aquatic environments all over the world. There you have it. Thank you, Brent. It's been wonderful. Thank you very much. Glad you guys uh, came by. Thank you. To continue your learning, go to our website, discoveringacademia.com. There, you'll find the show notes, resources mentioned, ways to get involved, and much more pertaining to each professor. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and join our newsletter to stay up to date. Until next time.